Welcome back to 10 and 20, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Sarah. And I'm Brad. We'd just like to start by quickly saying thank you so much to those of you who have uh, listened and subscribed to this show. If you have found value in this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes or on whatever app you choose. We would find that very helpful. This week, we are discussing a figure who is near and dear to our hearts, Moscow Branch Carter. Moscow was a member of the Carter family and was in the cellar of the Carter house during the Battle of Franklin. His life journey brought him through two wars, three marriages, and multiple eras of American history. So this is kind of the third episode in a series that we've done about the Carter boys who fought in the Civil War. For those of you who've been fans for a while, you can listen back to the Todd Carter episode, which was called Mint Julep, or the Francis Carter episode, which was called Love of Adventure. Those are from last season, so those don't have the fun intro music, but check them out anyway. Yeah, we weren't as cool back then. No. Uh, But Moscow is not someone that is well known to the public in general history. He's not even somebody who has a Wikipedia page, but he is someone who is vital to the story of the Carter family and someone who I think gives great insight into the events and to the ideologies of 19th and early 20th century American history. Some of the family stories that we mentioned on this podcast, as well as just facts about Moscow, come from a short biography that was written by his son, Moscow Jr., and from a book written by Rosalie Carter, Moscow's granddaughter. Like many family stories that have passed through multiple generations, there are certainly going to be some inaccuracies and exaggerations, but we're going to do our best to be as historically accurate as possible, and there's always a kernel of truth to all of these family stories. Exactly. So we'll start with Mosca's early life. He was born on the 5th day of December, A.D. 1825, according to the Carter Family Bible. His father was Fountain Branch Carter. And his mother was Mary Armistead Adkinson, also known as Polly. So let's quickly talk about the names Fountain and Polly chose for their kids, especially because we didn't do this on either the Todd podcast or the Francis podcast. The, but, we could call them the Toddcast or the Wadcast. <laughs> exactly. But they're, they're kind of weird names. Fountain and Polly's first four sons were Nison Red, Moscow Branch, Orlando Hortensius, and William Augustus. I did a little bit of digging just to see where those different names come from. And so you see in those first four names a combination of Hebrew, English, Finnic, Northwestern Russian, Italian, Roman, French, and German. Just all over the place. Right. Interestingly, Nyson, uh, their first son, is Hebrew for miracles. Got that from our curator, Joanna. That's kind of cool. Another little interesting thing that we talked about, that I talked about with Joanna is we realized that so Moscow's name is spelled the city the same as the city Moscow, which mm-hmm. existed at the time. And it was named after a river that runs through that area of Russia. And so maybe that was, and this is also just entirely speculation, but maybe he was named after his father, Fountain, kind of Another. not really named after him, but just slightly by saying like water source, like Fountain yeah. and then river. You never know. I mean, he does have his father's middle name, so. Exactly, yeah. Branch, like a branch from a stream. 
But while Moscow was the second of 12 siblings born, his older brother, Nison Red, only lived for three years. So for most of his life, he technically was the oldest child. And he was, in fact, the Carter's only surviving child in the first seven years of their marriage. In 1830, when Moscow was about four years old, his family moved into a house on a hill south of the village of Franklin, which is, of course, what we know of today as the Carter House, which Sarah and I both give tours of. Growing up, Moscow's nickname was Mock, and he was six foot one, and, sorry, six foot one and a half inches tall, as well as unusually strong. One family account said that he could shoulder a three bushel sack of wheat. I don't really know what that is, being someone who didn't grow up in the 1800s on a farm, but it sounds impressive. Yeah. I don't have any point of reference to what a bushel sack of wheat would weigh, but... They seem like it was a lot, so... Yeah, a large sack of wheat. He also could allegedly ease an average size anvil to the ground by himself. Again, don't really know what an average size anvil was, but again, just anvil sounds very heavy. Sounds like a lot. He graduated from the Harpeth Academy in Franklin and was good friends with another Franklin resident, William Ewing, which, if you live in Franklin, you probably have recognized that name on various streets and roads throughout town. Sometimes they would dive off a bridge located at the east end of Main Street and swim a mile and a half downstream. Yeah, Moscow seems to have been a a little bit of a troublemaker as a youth. At one point when he was 17 years old, he was summoned to appear with another young man at a congregational meeting at the Presbyterian Church to stand trial for attending a local dance. He pled guilty and he, quote, threw himself on the mercy of the court. He was only reprimanded, which was better than the other young man, who failed to attend the hearing and got expelled from church. Pretty bad. I love, though, how dramatic it was that he (laughs) threw himself on the mercy of the court. That's a quote from his son, Moscow Jr. And a year later, he was charged again, this time with drunkenness. He pled guilty again and promised that this would be the last time he ever got drunk in his entire life. According to his son, he kept that promise until the day that he died. Moscow was making a living as a young man as a practical land surveyor, which was his trade. And he was also studying to become a lawyer, but that was interrupted. He stopped his studies to volunteer to fight in the Mexican-American War. Moscow was 21 years old when he enlisted in 1846. So a couple of things right there. If you've listened to the last couple of episodes, you might have caught on that this is kind of a series. So we talked about James K. Polk two episodes ago, who was president at this time. And then the last episode we did was about Tennessee and the Mexican War. So if you want to learn more about why that war, why that war happened, go ahead and listen to those last two. Plus, when we start to talk about Moscow's role in the Mexican-American War here... All of this will just make so much more sense. And another interesting thought before we proceed is that when Moscow enlisted at 21 years old, he was the same age. He was actually the exact same age as Todd and just a little bit older than Francis uh, when those two brothers went off to war in the Civil War. And on May 26th, he rendezvoused in Lewisburg, Tennessee and mustered into service on June 2nd for 12 months. He enlisted as a private in Company B, 1st Tennessee Regiment, under Captain Harris Malden and Colonel William B. Campbell, but he was elected captain. He volunteered with William Ewing. Because Ewing was related to Governor Brown, they were placed in a Marshall County company as buck privates, rather than going back to Franklin to wait for duty like the rest of their company. 
His journey kind of took him off the rails almost immediately. So Moscow and William boarded a ship in New Orleans bound for Tampico, Mexico. But halfway through the trip, the ship got caught in a tropical storm and ended up all the way in the Orinoco River in South America in Venezuela. That's a long way to get off track when you're hitting Mexico and you end up hitting South America instead. Just another interesting note, if you listen to the Francis podcast already, so Moscow was the first, but both of those brothers spent a little bit of time in Venezuela. Well, I don't know if Moscow actually was touching Venezuela at all. He was but near he it. Was, he was near it, <laughs> relatively speaking, I guess. Because they moved so far off course, they were not prepared for such a long journey. And one quote from Moscow Jr. says that they almost died of thirst and caught a shark to eat, which had an old shoe inside of it. Hmm. <laughs> a little bit odd. But upon arriving in Mexico, one of the hardest things to deal with was the unsanitary living conditions. Lice infestations were particularly bad. And that the unsanitary living conditions will come back into play in just a minute. But at one point during the war, Moscow and William befriended a local who invited them to a dance. So the two boys snuck away from camp and danced, quote, until the small hours of the morning and were reluctant to bid the fair young ladies and their genial host goodbye. So I guess Moscow at least attended one other dance in his life. Oh, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. He promised the church he wouldn't. Well, I guess he's off at war. He's, you know, crazy things yeah, happen. Yeah, they, they have no control of Mexico. Apparently they were barely able to sneak back into camp undetected. And Moscow went on sick leave on September 7th and does not rejoin the army until sometime after the Battle of Monterey, which is September 21st through the 24th in 1846. He had typhoid fever, which is a disease usually caused by drinking from an unsanitary water source. Moscow was not present for the Battle of Monterey, which was the first large battle that the 1st Tennessee Infantry was engaged in. And if you listen back to our previous episode that we did with Dr. Tim Johnson, Dr. Johnson talked about how it was after that battle that the 1st Tennessee became known as the Bloody First. Like it became a huge point of honor to have been part of that regiment, but Moscow didn't participate in that battle. However, when Moscow recovers from his illness, he does fight, we believe, with at least two notable battles in the 1st Tennessee. On March 9th, 1847, he would have fought at Veracruz under General Winfield Scott. On April 13th, 1847, he would have fought at the Battle of Cerro Gordo. And on May 23rd, 1847, Moscow was discharged at New Orleans. One other interesting little tidbit before Moscow makes it back home, the boat that he was sailing on allegedly sunk yet again. But this time the boat he was on was transporting livestock as well as humans. And Moscow Jr. tells a story about how there was a bull that like stampeded off the side of the boat. So Moscow jumped in after it and then grabbed its tail so it could swim him to shore. I don't know if that part's true, <laughs> but we do know for sure that Moscow has an unlucky streak with boats. That totally sounds like something that a guy would tell his son or grandson, like whether it was true or not, to convince them that something fun happened back in his soldier days. Or just to think like, man, I have a really cool dad. Yeah, exactly. Moscow did have a couple more adventures while he was in his 20s. Shortly after returning from the Mexican-American War, Moscow and some companions undertook a land prospecting expedition via horseback 
into Texas. And he worked for a time building telegraph lines in Illinois for the Magnetic Telegraph Company. And on this trip, Moscow may have possibly met or saw a young Abraham Lincoln in Springfield, Illinois. But again, this could just be hyperbole. Right. It might just have been the fact that Moscow Jr. knew that Lincoln was from Springfield, Illinois. And so he said, well, they probably met when they were there. You never know. You never know. But Moscow returns home. And on June 7th, 1851, he married his first wife, Orlina Caledonia Dobbins. They had five children, Mary Orlina, Orlina, Walter Fountain, Sally Ella, Annie Josephine, and Hugh Ewing. But Orlina dies on June 27th, 1860, just five days after giving birth to their fifth child at 10.30 p.m. And at that point, the family was living on a farm just north of Franklin, Tennessee. So a couple, one other thing that Moscow did uh, for employment is he did own a general goods store in downtown Franklin. We found an advertisement for his store in the Franklin Weekly Herald in 1852, in which he said, we buy with cash and sell for cash. Therefore, we can sell lower than any man who does business on the credit system. And they listed their inventory, or he listed his inventory, saying that he had brown sugar, powdered and crushed sugar, nails, linseed oil, shaker brooms, which were $1.50 a dozen. Yeah, so people apparently buy brooms by the dozen. Or even bought them by the dozen. Yeah, who who does that? (laughs) Molasses and syrup and tallow candles, powder, buckets and tubs, soda, bonbons, and cornstarch. So just a wide variety of things. Mm -hmm. Another ad placed just later that same month in 1852 says, if there is anyone who can consciously make Answer to the question, I do, let him come to the bazaar, for that is the place, above all others, to supply himself with groceries at low prices. Moscow also traveled for work a little bit. In 1853, he was on board the Sultana, uh, heading for Galveston, and which is interesting because eventually that's the ship that later on explodes. So he did miss yeah. one ship incident in his yes. life, mm-hmm. but he sent a letter to his wife saying, Accept my undying love and ever believe me, your faithful and devoted husband. Kiss Lena and take care of any puppies. Oh, see, so sweet. So sweet. Moscow does own several enslaved people before and during the Civil War. In his family Bible, he lists his, quote, Negroes. And what's really interesting is that lots of them have their birth dates. Ishmael, born March 2nd, 1828. Arthur, Born May 8th, 1830. Wiley, born in 1834. George, Rachel, Anne. They don't have her birth date, but she said she died of consumption on February 24th, 1858. Eliza Jane, who is Rachel's daughter, and born May 30th, 1856. Fanny, Anne's daughter, and born May 28th, 1857. Caroline, born July 29th, 1875. Dick, born April of 1847. The 1860 slave schedule of M.B. Carter lists seven slaves ranging from ages 2 to 31, four males and three females. It also lists two slave cabins on the property. I think it's also important to note that Moscow is at least, like he was born into a slave-owning family. His father owned slaves. So it's, it's like a generational thing. Now, before the Civil War, Moscow was politically affiliated with the Whig Party. 
the Whig Party were modernizers who saw President Jackson as, quote, a dangerous man on horseback, acting more like a king than an elected official. Whigs tended to draw on the Jeffersonian tradition of compromise, balancing government and expansion in social, economic, and moral modernization. In 1848, Moscow himself made a speech. Uh, it was quoted in the newspaper. The first word is a typo, but I think it's supposed to be a capital speech, brief but excellent in wit, in sentiment, and in patriotic feeling at a rally in support of the Whigs. But the problem was, by the 1850s, the Whig party was dying. It was kind of breaking into pieces. And many former Whigs, especially Northern Whigs, formed a new political party called the Republican Party, which was known to be the party that opposed slavery and slavery's expansion. And of course, one of the early Whigs was Abraham Lincoln. Many Southern Whigs, such as Moscow, support the Constitutional Union Party in 1860, which hoped to avoid secession over the issue of slavery. Their nominee for president was John Bell, a Tennessean who, although he was a slave owner, was opposed to the expansion of slavery into the territories and opposed to secession. We also know that Moscow attended a rally in support of John Bell for the presidency in 1860. And what's interesting is that, of course, John Bell does not win the presidency. Abraham Lincoln wins the presidency. I right. feel we should just say that to get that out of the way. But by a fairly slim margin, John Bell won Tennessee. John Bell got 47.72% of the popular vote in Tennessee compared to John C. Breckinridge's 44.55% and Stephen Douglas's 7.72%. And of course, Abraham Lincoln wasn't even on the ballot in Tennessee. Like in most Southern states, Lincoln was not on the ballot. It wasn't just Tennessee. But this is, this is another example of how ideologically divided Tennessee was before the war. It's interesting, though, because at that point, before secession, by a slim margin, many Tennesseans voted for the candidate that was opposed to secession. And Moscow was one of them. If you remember anything from all of our podcasts is about Tennessee and secession, because that seems to be a theme that we bring up almost every single episode. We talk about it all the time. But eventually, as we've mentioned earlier, Tennessee votes to secede from the Union on June 8th, 1861, which I think is good to know after the Civil War starts. Mm -hmm. And it was the last state to officially secede. And so duty calls, and Moscow ends up going to war once again. He enlisted in May of 1861. So again, before Tennessee officially votes to leave the Union. Right, they were already organizing infantry regiments in Tennessee by that point in time. But in May of 1861, the, the Carter boys were organized into a company in Franklin, and Moscow was elected their company captain. The company was then organized into the 20th Tennessee Infantry, and Moscow was elected their lieutenant colonel. And it's likely due to the fact that he's older, he's 35 at that point, and that he has prior military experience. The brothers spent their final winter together in southeastern Kentucky along the Cumberland River. And Moscow does a pretty good job at writing down his daily thoughts as he's a soldier. So we've just taken a few of his quotes from those books that kind of stuck out with me the most. And the first one was written on September 22nd, 1861. He said, an officer has a great deal more to do than a private soldier, though probably you would not think so. December 10th, 1861. 
I am more and more disgusted with the want of discipline in our camps. The repeated discharge of firearms, like a conflict of skirmishers, is the everyday amusement of the licentious, which means promiscuous and unprincipled in sexual matters. Yeah, we had to look up that word. It does not mean people filled with lice. On December 16th, 1861, he wrote, Negroes are frequently running away from camp and supposed to be going to the enemy. And on December 20th, 1861, Moscow recorded that he was reading Charles Dickens' The Pickwick Papers. On January 19th, 1862, Moscow was captured in the Battle of Mill Springs. He ended up spending seven months in a prison camp, prison camps like Camp Chase and Fort Warren. While at Fort Warren, which is located in the Boston Harbor, Moscow wrote a letter to his children back home. He said this, I reckon you know when island is, but lest you do not, I will tell you. It is a small body of land entirely surrounded by water. Well, so I told you, I am an island in the sea and nine miles from Boston. Boston is a large city containing two or 300,000 people and perhaps more. We are inside of the city and Bunker Hill Monument that you have heard about in your school book. And when I first read this letter, I thought he was writing it to his wife. And I was like, does he think his wife is an idiot? Yeah, <laughs> I guess you know what an island is. No, but his children are young at this point. Some have you ever are, heard of Boston? Some of them are like four and five years old. It makes more sense when he's doing that. So and it's kind of sweet. They're living in Tennessee. They may not have even seen an island before in their entire lives. So right. he kind of has to explain it to them. But Moscow was officially exchanged as a prisoner of war and allowed to return home in August of 1862. About half of his time as a Civil War soldier was spent as a POW. And I feel like it's important to take a quick moment to talk about prisoner exchange. Because oftentimes when I am doing the tour at Carter House and I mentioned that Moscow was home on parole or home, home as an exchanged officer, people are kind of confused how that worked. And it's a really interesting aspect of Civil War history that I think gets overlooked. So according to an agreement called the Dix Hill Cartel, which was made on July 22nd, 1862... U.S. and Confederate prisons would exchange an equal number of prisoners based on kind of like a, a grading scale where officers were worth more and enlisted men were worth less. But they would exchange these men at an equal number and then the remaining soldiers would, would be released on parole and expected to return home. And while they were waiting at home, they might eventually be exchanged and then could go off to fight if they so chose to. But it's good to know if you were on parole, you were expected to not fight, mm -hmm. to just go home. Now, this all comes to a close in the summer of 1863 when Abraham Lincoln ended this process because the Confederate government refused to parole African-American POWs and instead opted to return them to their former masters. So it didn't last forever, but for a time, there was this exchange program, which once it ended, led to a dramatic increase in the prison populations. And Moscow was one of the lucky ones. He gets released in August of 1862, just a little bit after the Dix Hill Cartel goes into effect. Here is the confusing bit. According to the official records, or the ORs, Moscow was exchange, which means he could have gone back to war to fight if he wanted to. His term of enlistment was up, so he would not have been required to serve again, but many men in that position did choose to go back and fight. In Moscow's letters from this time, he mentions he was exchanged. But years later in a newspaper article, he was quoted as saying he was paroled. The only reason we bring that up because is because that if Moscow was in fact exchanged, 
it means that him staying home was entirely his own choice. Whereas if he was paroled, he was just a man of his word who was released on parole, expected to go home, and then chose to do it. If he was exchanged, it meant, well, at that point, he could have gone back to fight, but chose to stay home anyway. Regardless, we know he returned home to Franklin and never went back to the war. In fact, Moscow would eventually take his oath of allegiance back to the Union, which meant he promised to behave as a peaceful citizen of the United States from that point on. Two years later, one of the most violent events of the entire war would take place all around his home. The regiment he used to command, including his little brother Todd, would fight on the Carter farm while Moscow and his family were sheltered in the cellar of their house. We're going to stop Moscow's story there. But don't worry, we'll be back again in two weeks with part two. Make sure you subscribe to us on the Apple Podcast app or whatever app you find to be the most convenient and leave us a review while you're there. Follow us on Instagram. Our name is 10in20podcast or send us an email at podcast at boft.org. And if you'd like to support the show, head to store.boft.org to pick up one of our 10 and 20 t-shirts. We just got a bunch of new sizes, so I'm sure we have yours available. Thank you so much for listening.